Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together in order to glean wonderful things from your word. We thank you for the clarity of scripture. We thank you for the power of the gospel, which is such that right in the giving of it, we are told that we will have to sacrifice, that we will have to suffer And yet, so great is the wooing of the Spirit that we are pulled through that into something we recognize to be far greater than the sufferings we will experience on this earth. Lord, help us to understand better how to walk through these things in a way that honors you, that magnifies the work of your Spirit, and that teaches a lost and dying world that he who is in us is indeed greater than he who is in them. I pray for a movement of the Spirit. I pray for the understanding of your people. And I pray for those that are here that don't know you, that today they would turn from their darkness and from their evil and pay homage to the Son. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This afternoon, we're going to turn straight to the text as we continue our study through the book of Acts. And because verse 19 of Acts chapter 14, which picks up where we last left off, is the consequence of the previous verses, we are first going to briefly revisit verses 8 through 18, after which we will slow down as we enter new territory, and then we will move through the end of the chapter. And at first pass here, we're going to focus mostly, though not exclusively, on historical context. And then we're going to expound in points after that the spiritual applications from this text, which speak right to matters that are situated at the very center of the Christian faith. So my lack of any prolonged introduction here is not to be understood as a reflection of anything other than the fact that these lessons are profoundly significant, and thus I am very eager to deliver them to you. So Acts 14, verses 8 through 19. At Lystra... A man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Then the crowd saw what Paul had done. They raised their voice, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. 
The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. So as we acknowledged previously, Paul and Barnabas unwittingly became gods, and the crowds became their idolatrous worshipers. Paul and Barnabas refused to receive their worship, and so the crowd became, in effect, a jilted lover. And so they responded to rejection as jilted lovers often tend to. Verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And so as it does not take much to convince a woman that the man that just dumped her is a no-good, rotten so-and-so, it doesn't take much to convince these people that the men who just refuse their advances are villains, and for similar reasons. Only this cast-aside lady isn't going to just key his car on the way out and through the parking lot. She instead attempts murder. Worship by its nature is very much like a relationship between a man and a woman, and that's why I continue to represent it this way, and this I do in keeping with Scripture. Positively speaking, we are represented as Christ's bride in the Bible. Negatively speaking, false worshipers are represented as whores. And this is why spurned lovers and spurned worshipers act so similarly, because while love is not love, in the way that the pagans believe it to be, false worship is false worship, be it experienced and expressed romantically or in a more institutional way. Now, quick question here, and one that is not directly related to the historical context or literary context, but why is Paul the only one here who gets stoned? Why isn't Barnabas treated the same way? Barnabas is a ministry partner. Barnabas does not shy away from the gospel. Why is he not being pummeled with fist-sized rocks too? Well, it goes back to, if you recall, the way that the crowds identified them after the lame man's healing. Yes, Barnabas is Zeus. What is Zeus? Probably stoic, probably more regal, at least in appearance, probably older, and Paul is Hermes. He is the chief spokesman of the gods generally, but especially for Zeus. And so the one that speaks most is going to receive the most ire, especially when you're talking about the gospel. You want to step up? You want to speak on behalf of the living God? You need to understand that when it breaks bad, it's going to break bad worse for you than anybody else. And that is what happens. However, by the grace of God, Paul does not die. Again, the end of verse 19 says, supposing him to be dead, and then moving into verse 20, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. Let me set the scene here for you a bit, if I may. I think it will be clarifying and help explain to you how it was that they were unable to finish the job. First off, you need to understand that this is not a neat and clean process. This is not well organized. This is mob injustice. 
Okay, there is one faction, though, here, and they account for the majority of the people present, and individuals within this faction foment rage until somebody commits to actually picking up a large rock and hurling it at Paul. And as has been the case in many wars, once that first shot is fired, first arrow loosed, all hell breaks loose. And that is exactly what happened. And so you have some people, no doubt, circling Paul, angling to get the best shot off that they can. Paul is undoubtedly assuming a defensive posture. So I would think that his forearms would be in front of his face. Once he is knocked to the ground, he would be in something like a fetal position. There is also, though, another much smaller faction present. And this is identified as the disciples in verse 20. And presumably, based upon what we know, these are all in the mix the whole time too. Perhaps including, as I said in a previous sermon, Timothy, maybe even his mother. And they're probably doing what they can to deflect blows and to protect Paul. But at some point, individuals grab a hold of Paul's apparently unconscious body, perhaps all the while still wrestling for control of his unconscious body with the disciples, and they are able to dump him outside of the city, believing him to be dead, though they leave him encircled by his friends, by his ministry partners, at which point he rouses, unbeknownst to the now departed Jews and pagans that had thought that they killed him. And certain aspects of that accounting is inferred, but I don't think that any of that is a stretch. To be sure, though, there was absolute chaos. And in the chaos, assumptions were made that proved to be false, chiefly that Paul was dead when he was not. But although he is still amongst the living, he is definitely not living his best life now. He is obviously very, very hurt. And so according to verse 20, he re-enters the city, doubtless to seek medical care and rest from and with the brethren, and after having received a kind of physical abuse that kills virtually every man that receives it, he, of course, wakes up the following morning, walks 40 miles, and continues to preach that same gospel for which he has just suffered. Pick up again in verse 20. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby, again a 40-mile journey. After they had preached the gospel to that city, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. Now there is very much in that block of verses to consider, and all of it will be considered as follows. First, the appointment of leaders as well as the interchurch cooperation on display here is going to be addressed in a previously promised but yet still future sermon, and I think what's shaping up to be sermons on ecclesiology per the book of Acts. So I am storing these things away bit by bit in a bank, and I will make a withdrawal at some point when I feel that all of this has been sufficiently filled out so that I can give you a cohesive whole on what the church is supposed to be. The rest, though, with special emphasis upon through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, is going to be addressed directly, and uh, I will do this in enumerated points, beginning now with, by number one, 
Christian tribulation is an opportunity for discipleship that must not be wasted. Christian tribulation is an opportunity for discipleship that must not be wasted. Let's start here with a question. While Paul is still bleeding, before his wounds have healed, where does he turn his focus? In verse 22, he turns it to the strengthening of the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith by saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, every Christian, and you know this well, is to make disciples per the Great Commission. Now, what is fundamental, though, to making disciples? Teaching, as in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I, Jesus, commanded you. And so that means that all of us are teachers. And as teachers, there is something that we should all understand, and that is that people do not tend to learn best through prosperity. They tend to learn best through trials, and this is consistent with the word of James, James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, it is not that we do not learn through good times or regular times of teaching. If that were so, this would be a futile endeavor right now, wouldn't it? This is a regular time. The issue, though, is that the lessons that we learn in times of peace are often only codified in our minds and in our hearts in times of tribulation, or at least best so. And these tribulations also, by the way, do not need to be personally experienced in order for this to be true, as they were not personally experienced by the other disciples around Paul, who were privy to his suffering and his response to that suffering. And it is not as though the way that he conducts himself through this renders him a god to them, or that he here takes the place of Jesus and becomes an additional Messiah. It is that his conduct has given form to what Jesus taught, and more importantly, even than what Jesus taught, is who Jesus is, from which all he taught is derived. Paul is merely a servant. But as a servant, he serves Christ's sheep very, very well in general, but especially here and in this. And this is the case because he has enough awareness to recognize that this moment right here, right now, with a body marked by open wounds and disfiguring bruising, is an opportunity to build the faith of the men and probably women around him that he is not going to get back if he lets it escape his grasp. Now let's pause here for a moment. Let me ask you some questions, some simple questions about these other disciples. Are they also preachers and practitioners of an outlawed faith, as Paul is? Yes. Then what are the odds that they're going to experience tribulation on account of being so? Well, to steal a bit from the forthcoming point, the odds are 100%. So then, if they are going to be put in the same furnace, they had better be of the same stock. They had better be Christ's people forged into something unbreakable, and that forging is here begun by the observation of Paul being brutally beaten but not broken, or you might say cast down but not destroyed. When devastation comes, all eyes are upon the one who has been devastated. And when they should be at their worst, when they have every right according to the flesh to lick their wounds, to rest, to retreat, only instead they pull the fiery dart out of their chest and keep on fighting. They elevate those around them by reminding them of the power of Christ within them. Job did this. 
and his testimony remains for all the saints of all time to draw from. Let me remind you both of the circumstances and the response to which I allude. Job 1, 13 through 22. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. I also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. I want to stop here with you before I read to you the conclusion of at least this section, and I want to put upon you an impossible request. I would like you to pretend for a moment, as a matter of your learning, that you do not know what happens next. Try as hard as you can to imagine that you don't even know who God is, and therefore you don't know an experience or creed that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so all you have is that power of the human spirit stuff that the secularists are always going on about and that they have written so many books concerning. So given the limitations of the human spirit and the limited strength of our will, which you estimate based upon your knowledge of yourself, there can be no doubt that Job has been broken in ways that cannot be mended, that cannot be made right. And certainly in this state, he cannot and will not be giving any kind of a blessing will not be able to think about anything beyond what he is presently mired in. So you surmise rightly that pain of this kind cannot be quelled by anything inside of a natural man. But then you read, continuing in verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. All of this makes sense. But, and worshipped? He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, Job later sought an explanation for his suffering, but in the strictest sense, he was given none. What was the explanation? It was not anything concerning why God had done what he had done. It was everything about who God was manifest in his creation. However, in reading this and being sanctified by it, you can and should know the answer that he sought, at least in part. In the observation of his great pain and the faith that endured it, you are sanctified through an understanding of the nature and the role of your quite modest suffering in comparison, and more so by the revelation of the nature of the God who decreed it. And that is the same gift that Paul has given all of the saints who watched him be pummeled and then watched and walk 40 miles to preach a day later. And it is the same gift that you'll be given an opportunity to give disciples of your own. As church leaders, this is especially true of us because we will have the attacks of Satan focused upon us more so than will others. But this is also true of fathers and husbands. Without question, 
when everything falls apart and you have little eyes upon you and your wife is looking at you, brother, this is an opportunity you must not fail with. Not because it's an opportunity to convince your family of your own virtue, but because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and you must tell the truth about his nature and his power. And mothers, by the way, this is true of you as well. You will be put into travail and you'll have little eyes upon you. And in fact, the best example that I have ever heard outside of Scripture comes to me from a mother. And I've used this illustration in the past for other points, but knew an older woman, a German woman who'd lived through the events of World War II and her family, they were all Christians. And uh, the Lord blessed her father by allowing him to never fire a bullet on behalf of the Nazis. He became a medic, but... He never came back. He was killed in the war. And after the war, a lesser-known reality of what occurred, the Russians took over uh, much of Germany and seized many assets and seized much, prof much property, including their home. And so this elderly woman, by the time I talked to her, told me the story of the time when the Russians came and took their home and her mother... Uh, now a widow, had in tow, I believe it was five little children, and she was holding their hands, and they were holding each other's hands, and they walked down the driveway, I guess, or down the street a bit, and the mother, Christian, turned around, looked over her shoulder, quoted Job 121, Lord gives, Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That mother rose. She rose Based upon the opportunity that was given to her, she honored her Lord in the way that she did, and she has her reward in heaven. And she has now long since received it. The question that's being answered by the suffering saint as they suffer is not what can they themselves endure. That's not an issue at all. Rather, the question being asked and answered is, what is God within them able to grant them strength to endure? And what is the answer to that question? Christian. It is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And because that question has such bearing upon our ability to live lives to the glory of God and to teach each other to do the same, you must answer it rightly. You must tell no lies about the power of the God that indwells you. Paul had the presence of mind and the grace to understand that his beating was not about him. You must know the same. Your beatings are not about you either. Point number two. Christian tribulation is absolutely distinct in kind and nobody sees heaven without experiencing it. A subject of suffering for Christ comes up a lot, at least if you simply honestly study the Bible, which sadly is not the case in most churches, but nevertheless. Christ's suffering is the means by which he saved us. Our suffering is the means by which he sanctifies us and testifies of his nature and his grace to us and then the world through us to the glory of God. And all suffering experienced by a genuine believer, irrespective of the kind, will function this way because all things work to the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. But the fact that Christ uses all suffering for the benefit of the sheep, leaving none, wasted, does not mean that all suffering is distinctly Christian suffering. For example, you will lose loved ones to death. 
And through this, if you're a Christian, because you're a Christian, you will be drawn nearer to Christ. Because in your pain, you will recognize your need for him more. And in that, that pain will be redeemed. But your unbelieving neighbor has loved ones too, don't they? And they will lose them to death also. So the result of this kind of suffering is unique to us, but not the suffering itself. Here's another example, though I hope one that is not experienced by any here other than those who have already experienced it. God forbid that divorce should ever become necessary for you. But perhaps through rampant and impenitent infidelity, it does. If this occurs and you're a believer, the Lord will gather you beneath his wing. He will love you and he will heal you. And in doing so, he will teach you who he is in ways that you could never have learned through prosperity. A great truth. It is also true, though, that your unbelieving co-workers have experienced the pain of divorce, too. So with this also, the result of this kind of suffering is unique to us, but not the suffering itself. So these tribulations are great and terrible and used of God to mold and to shape us to his glory, but they are not the tribulations of which Paul speaks when he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I've given you a couple examples, but anything that is common to all men, including fallen men, is not in kind Christian tribulation. So death, disease, poverty, broken relationships, familial and otherwise, betrayal of various different kinds, and all else that is lamentably consistent with living in a fallen world would be outside of this distinct category. But if any of these are experienced because of Christ in you, well, then they do fit within that particular kind. As Jesus says, Luke eighteen twenty nine through 30, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, why is it important to recognize these distinctions? Because the statement is not through many tribulations, some must enter the kingdom of God. It is through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God as in every Christian. But at this point, I do anticipate what seems to be an inevitable objection from some, and that is that I have not proved that the we here is all-encompassing of Christians, period. There is nothing yet that has been offered to you to demonstrate that this is not simply referring to some elite class of Christian and that I am not, therefore, being overbroad in my application. And so if this is your objection, I will now speak to it. And first, I will remind you that Acts is not a standalone volume, as I have taught you many times before. Acts is volume two of a two-volume set on the history of Christian origins. And the author of both is Luke, writing first to Theophilus. And so volume one of this two-volume set is the gospel that bears his name. And as with many things in the book of Acts, volume one is very clarifying. So Luke 14, 26 through 35. And I will place emphasis deliberately upon certain words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, 
when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So faith, not defined by suffering for Christ, specifically for Jesus, and as far as he was concerned, was not worth seasoning dung with. Not for the twelve, not for Paul, not for Barnabas, not for the preacher, not for the deacons, not for the sweet old lady in the choir, not for the passive-aggressive teen in the pews who knows better, not for the casual hearer who has never contributed anything to the church that they regularly attend, either spiritually or materially, not for the Christian professor, not for the Christian adjacent, not for anybody anywhere. And then Luke carries this line through Acts by quoting Paul, saying, Through many tribulations, we, all followers of Jesus, everywhere, in every time, must enter the kingdom of God. And pray tell, if not the kingdom of God, if not the heaven that comes with it, then what is the other option? Because there are only two. So if you do not suffer for Christ, you're going to hell. Oh, but this is an affront to grace. How so? Considering that in the very same passages, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And that was in verses 25 and 26. Now, Christian tribulation is not a poll tax paid by the Christian on their way to heaven. If it were, indeed, it would negate grace. But it isn't, and it is never represented as being such in Scripture. But it is nevertheless and undeniably so essential and inevitable for every single person whose end is heaven. I don't know a lot about shipping centers, but from what I understand, there is a highly consistent process for getting packages from point A to point Z, i.e. boxed and shipped, though I think this process is not always carried through because sometimes it does appear that my packages from Amazon were stomped on ahead of time. But I think this is at least supposed to be the way that it works. But if it is handled by such a center, it's handled in a certain uniform way every time, at least in theory. And if a package is understood to undergo a certain process necessary for it to arrive at its destination in the desired condition, then why is this here hard to understand? The means is grace. All grace, only grace, all the time. But the process is pain. And not only pain all the time, the hymn is not wrong that says there is joy in serving Jesus. Of course there is. Of course there is great joy as a consequence of serving Jesus as we have good marriages and good relationships that are blessed by that and we have this wonderful community of faith. But if you are not a Christian who experiences tribulation for Christ's sake, you are not a Christian at all and you will see heaven never. But this still leaves one issue to settle. 
And that is the issue of self-deluded false confessors mistaking their tribulations for these tribulations. Think with me for a moment about Matthew 7 and the false professor there. And I'm going to read to you verses 21 through 23 of that chapter to remind you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I want to ask you this. Do you suppose that in the process of this person casting out demons or at least believing that they have, that sacrifices have not been made by them? that suffering was not experienced as a result of taking this position, at least naming the name of Christ in this sort of context, of course, at certain points, and certainly depending more so upon which period of history in which that person lived. How about uh, prophesying in Christ's name? There are many who preach a true gospel who are not converted, but do they still not suffer something for the name? And even if their gospel is not true, there are people who will persecute you just for naming Jesus. Servetus was put down. He was a false teacher. How hard do you think it would have been to convince him that he did not die as a matter of Christian persecution? There's even some degree of persecution, or call it opposition, for health and wealth preachers. A little while ago, I remember hearing a story, I think this was after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, that a group of, I think they were lesbian feminists, uh, they were very angry, but they went to Joel Osteen's church, of all things, and stood up there and screamed and yelled against him. But is that kind of tribulation Christian tribulation? No. It, in fact, cannot be, because they are not Christians, and thus they preach about Christ and in the name of Christ, but still not for Christ. They preach for themselves and so suffer for their own vanity's sake, having only used Christ to prop up that vanity. Consider also Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress In my imprisonment, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So you have there preachers preaching the true gospel in the first century. Are they experiencing tribulation for doing so? Oh, inevitably they are. Yes. Without question. You got Nero in the 50s and emperors after him are slightly more favorable. Gets real rough again in the 80s, though. But nobody likes Christians. But they are also preaching out of selfish ambition with an aim to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. Like that's one of the purposes of their preaching. That is actually an aim that they have, an aspiration. So have these preachers of true salvation been saved by their own message, not on your life, 
To reference our course of study previously in CE hour, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But then preceding that also in Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and please listen for emphasis added here, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Also applying Paul in Galatians to Paul in Philippians, these preachers of truth. Paul in Galatians, yes, to Paul in Philippians, to Paul in Acts, these preachers of truth cannot have been converted by that truth. Given that half of the listed attributes of unbelievers are obviously rightly attributed to them, and given that the fruit of the Spirit clearly is not attributable to them. Yet again, there is no chance that in the first century context they are not suffering on account of the true gospel. So again, as we surveyed us, how difficult do you think it would be to disabuse them of the notion that they are actually suffering for Christ when they are not? You can imagine the objections, but we preach, and we are persecuted for it. And perhaps some from our faction have been imprisoned because of it, and it seems unlikely that they haven't. Because of it, yes, by appearances, but because of vain personal indulgence in reality. Vain indulgence that merely uses the message of Christ to prop up the messenger, and that is what accounts for so much of what is falsely called Christian tribulation in evangelical circles, including ours. I have known many people who fall into this category in street preaching and street evangelism. Their marriages, they are sure, suffer for the name. But when you get to know them and you have an actual insight into their lives, you understand by observation that their marriages suffer because they are bad husbands and they are bad wives. And they are often bad fathers and bad mothers. And they are so because the gospel that they preach has never penetrated the relationships that they have because they have never received their own message. And it is my prayer that the layers of self-deception for these people would be stripped away before it is too late. But I will at least say of them that their pretense is more believable than it is with many others. Have you ever heard a VBS organizer experience some setback and say, well, clearly the devil does not want this to happen. Only in this particular VBS, as is the case with the vast majority of them, there is not going to be any gospel given. So why would the devil oppose you? How about the pragmatic church pastor? Something happens in the sound room, he loses his mic. Clearly Satan doesn't want you to hear what I have to say today. Satan owns your pulpit. He speaks from it every Sunday. Why would he want to hinder that message? Look, if Christian tribulation is something without which we will not see heaven, then we had better make sure that what we are experiencing is indeed Christian tribulation. That's why I tease this out to the point of perhaps being tedious. It is so critical. Cannot be deceived here. You suffer, but everybody suffers. Do you suffer for Christ because you belong to him? Point number three and finally, our Christian tribulation is one of the greatest sources of our unity. Now, before I advance into this at all, I want to make clear again that I am saying that our tribulation is one of our greatest sources 
of unity. It is, of course, a very distant second to that which was experienced for us by Christ. And that is at the very center of all of our fellowship, and we recognize this as we observe the Lord's Supper. We gather gather around his broken body and his blood that was shed for us. Christ's suffering is unique in degree and effect. We do suffer similarly to the way that he suffered at times, and parallels can be drawn, and he, in fact, draws them times. Do not think that the student is above his master. And so we can rightly pray Psalm 22 as a personal prayer, relating it to our lives, but the unique experience of that, of course, is forever Christ's. And the marks of his victory over his unique tribulation are forever worn as trophies on his hands and on his feet, and you will yet see them, Christian. But consider again Paul's plain statement as well as the effect of it in the text. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples, who are the we present, are strengthened as a result of this statement. On the last point, we define the we, but here we will consider the implications and the effects of this communal experience of tribulation. These tribulations that we suffer bind us all together because we all share them. Now, it is a strong point, and rightly made and necessarily made, that we must all suffer tribulation or we will not enter heaven. But something sweeter is gleaned from the fact that we do all suffer from the same tribulation and that is the unity that results from that common experience of pain, or you might say kinship, indeed the greatest kind of kinship, that of brother and sister in Christ. And this is very clearly one of the threads running through the Psalms. Psalm 147 is just one example of this, but there are many. And this is one through six. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praises becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He gives to all of them names. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. That is not a psalm for an individual. In fact, none of the psalms are for individuals. They may speak specifically to an individual, but they are for the people of God of all time, the redeemed of Christ in every age. We are all brokenhearted in the same ways. We are all afflicted in the same ways. And yet the Lord supports us all together. Now, the paganism that rules our day is not in every respect a rejection of truth. In it, there are actually many echoes of what is true. Common suffering as a source of unity is one of these. And Satan well knows of the unifying power of shared suffering. Everything in our day is grievance culture. Grievance everywhere, all the time. But because unity, especially deriving from legitimate grievance, is life-giving and life-affirming, and Satan hates life, he promotes grievance culture in a way that actually succeeds in dividing. It was a time when Americans were aggrieved by certain parties As Americans, we had one common threat. We had one common enemy. And our unity was spurred by one shared injustice that if not experienced by us all, at least was able to be appreciated by us all and empathy was able to be given by all because it was understood that all at least existed under the purview of the human experience. But Satan smashes us into pieces 
And so this group experiences a grievance that we can't possibly understand if we're in another group, and another group has theirs, and another group has theirs, and on and on it goes. In case you haven't noticed, there are a lot of individual groups now, all with grievances that we are told are beyond the understanding or sympathies of any other group. Yet in the body of Christ, as we are converted and grafted in, the Spirit unifies us around first the suffering of the Son and second our suffering for the Son. And this suffering is very real and we feel it truly as Job did. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshipped. But Christian, Christ gave you his body of which he made you a part so that when you fall to the ground, you will not fall alone. We will fall with you and we will worship with you there too because we have suffered in the same way. We have tasted the same dirt and we have had that same bitterness fill our mouths, but we have also been sweetened by the worship that comes after that. The desert bloom comes by recognizing once more Christ who suffered for us first, by whose grace alone we enter into God's eternal rest as we yet will. As Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he will take his stand on the earth even after my flesh is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall see God. Not because Job was a better man than me and light years better, in fact, I have been left with more than a bitter wife and some terrible friends to counsel me in my pain. I have you, you have me, we all have each other. We are bound together by Christ. We are unified by his suffering for us and our suffering for him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can suffer well, not because of ourselves, but because of your spirit at work within us. We thank you that through our suffering we are able to know you more, you who are, Lord Jesus, a man of sorrows. Teach us, as been, has been said, to love the wave that throws us into the rock. We praise you and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.